Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website and that is bigamateurism.com and I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And I also have a blog that you can check out and I haven't written in that in, in quite a while, but there's some stuff that goes back to early 2019 that you might find interesting. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you want to reach out to me, you can send me an email at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is July 28th, 2022. And in this episode, I'm going to talk a little bit more about conference realignment, but really through a different lens. In the last episode, I talked about Mark Wilhelm's 2017 article on these grant of rights provisions through the lens of really a contract analysis. And I purposefully stayed away from what I see as some potential antitrust issues, which are really independent of the interpretation of the grant of rights contracts themselves. And it really goes to the market and motives and the structure of the big-time college sports business model, particularly with respect to big-time football, which again, as I uh, have noted often in this podcast, is really the driving force behind the structure of college sports, the regulation of college sports, and the financial incentives in college sports. And uh, two episodes ago, I I talked about the fact that antitrust issues have lurked in the background of almost every structural change in the marketplace that's occurred since the 1950s, going back to the NCAA stare down of the University of Pennsylvania and Notre Dame, which had their own independent television deals and and products, and the NCAA wanted those two schools to get rid of them so that the NCAA could begin its uh, 30-year monopoly over televised football. And they wound up capitulating, but they raised antitrust issues. And they had a pretty good antitrust case, but they chose to just go along to get along rather than risk being essentially blackballed by the rest of the NCAA membership. And then, of course, you had the College Football Association in the 1970s making noise about that monopoly that the NCAA acquired in 1951. And in the 1970s, the CFA started making noise about the antitrust implications of that monopoly over televised football. They filed the Board of Regents decision through the universities of Oklahoma and Georgia. And in 1981, a district court issued an injunction on the grounds that that NCAA monopoly over televised football was a facial per se violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. And then the Supreme Court affirmed that. They applied a rule of reason analysis, but they said, yeah, this is a a classic case of a monopolist, of a, a cartel acting to suppress the economic interests of other market participants. And then, of course, immediately after Board of Regents, when the CFA started doing its own television deals with the big networks, there was still a have-have-not dynamic, and the CFA members were the haves, and the non-CFA members were 
have-nots to a certain degree, and you had antitrust issues uh, rear their ugly head again, and you had the Department of Justice looking at the CFA as a potential monopolist or a market actor that was engaging in anti-competitive behavior. And then the CFA kind of uh, died a slow death, disbanded in 1997, and then we picked right back up with the discussion between the haves and have-nots in college football with respect to the postseason and the dominance of the haves, what are now the Power Five conferences. So you uh, had these hearings in the Senate, in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, which has jurisdiction only because there were antitrust implications. That issue renewed itself in 2003. And then you had the crazy game of musical chairs going into full swing. And when the music stopped playing, there were five major conferences, the Power Five, the likes of which college sports had never seen in terms of the aggregation of football power uh, across these uh, super conferences. And those conferences acting in concert have also raised antitrust issues. And that uh, group of conferences formed the CFP in 2012, and they brought in some have-nots, the group of five, in my judgment, to mitigate some of the antitrust concerns that would have existed if the Power Five had just kept the CFP all to itself. But under that format, the Power Five still dominate the the revenue streams. They get 80% of the revenue and the have-nots get some table scraps and they have less incentive to challenge that status quo. And then, of course, we had the autonomy legislation, which was a concerted effort by the Power Five as a single group of conferences to achieve legislative flexibility that wasn't available to any other group of interests in the NCAA. And that essentially amounted to an association within an association. And it was at or about that time you had these conferences executing their grant of rights agreements. And one of the things that I'm going to explore here is whether or not That kind of cooperation, and I'm going to go through the ways in which the Power Five have cooperated more than they have competed. And I think that you could look at this through the lens of antitrust law, and these grant of rights provisions sound a lot like non-poaching agreements. I'm going to talk a little bit more about non-poaching agreements here in a little bit and their anti-competitive effects in the marketplace. And those types of agreements, which occur in various industries, targeting different segments of industries, are a problem because they are anti-competitive. And the Department of Justice has made those types of agreements a priority. And I mentioned this in the last episode and then in many uh, other episodes. And that is that when the experts in the Austin case, the athletes experts, Dan Rasher and Roger Knoll, who are two of the leading experts on the economics of big time college sports, they put together really detailed expert reports on behalf of the athletes to talk about what this market looked like. And when they were analyzing the Power Five, they identified that autonomy classification in 2014 is a a pivotal milestone in the aggregation of power in the NCAA system. And they referred to that group of conferences and the autonomy classification as essentially creating a sub-cartel under the NCAA umbrella. And that cartel was operating within this overarching compensation limit that was set by the NCAA 
as the as an association-wide compensation limits. And what they were arguing as an alternative to the NCAA's monopoly over those compensation limits was some type of competition among and between the conferences. And I've talked about this in prior episodes. There was some, I think, tension between the categorization of the Power Five as a sub-cartel and the suggestion that competition among and between the Power Five for these uh, limited class of education benefits would solve the antitrust issues. Because by identifying that group as a sub-cartel, you're essentially conceding, I think, that there are anti-competitive features of that group of market participants. And when Judge Wilkin was crafting her injunction order and basically benching the NCAA with respect to these education-related benefits, this limited category of education-related benefits, and turning them over to the conferences, it was premised on the assumption that there would be some form of competition among and between the Power Five with respect to those education benefits. And she didn't really focus on the fact that in so many other areas, the Power Five cooperate as a cartel. And I think that was just an easy pathway to work within the O'Bannon limitation between the education benefits, which were okay under uh, the Ninth Circuit opinion in O'Bannon, and then these non-education benefits, which would include outright pay for play, which was not okay under the Ninth Circuit's analysis in O'Bannon, because the athletes chose not to challenge the cartel, essentially, by abandoning on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court their claim that all compensation limits should be struck down. And if they had pursued that claim, I think they would have had to address the the behavior of the sub-cartel and its anti-competitive features, not the areas in which it actually competes. So it's a really interesting analysis that I'm not sure really gets to the core of the nature of this five conference cartel and all of the ways in which they have cooperated. And in looking at competition issues, one man's cooperation could be another man's collusion. And I think that you, know, you have to look at how the market participants interact with each other to determine where that line is. And that's a complicated analysis and it's uh, very much fact-driven. But in Austin, the court and the litigants avoided that issue and that inquiry into all the ways that the the Power Five cartel suppressed competition because in that transition from the NCAA to the Power Five, I guess technically you had the possibility of more competition because you took the decision-making away from the monopolist and gave it to a five-member cartel. But remember, in Judge Wilkins' order, when she was talking about the Power Five's ability to, quote-unquote, compete in the provision of these benefits, and, and that order was purely permissive. The, the uh, Power Five conferences weren't required to provide the education benefits. They could provide all the benefits, some of the benefits, or none of the benefits, so long as they did not collude. And that is included in Judge Wilkins' order. She makes very clear in that order that the Power Five cannot engage in anti-competitive collusion with respect to the provision of those benefits, which which I think is a tacit acknowledgement that there are anti-competitive features of that sub-cartel and the potential for anti-competitive collusion. And those benefits really haven't been on the radar screen since Austin. And I made the point during my analysis of Austin that the NCAA and Power Five really didn't give a damn about 
the injunction order and these education benefits because they were so limited. I think it would be fair to conclude at this point because these benefits have been in place now for two years. The conferences and schools could have been providing them. That there hasn't been an educational benefits arms race. And that was the skies falling narrative that the NCAA portrayed when it was litigating Austin at the district court level and the Ninth Circuit level. And then, of course, they switched gears when they appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court to really focus on this antitrust immunity argument, which was the purpose of their appeal in the first place. They didn't give a damn about these education-related benefits, and I don't think they really believed that there was going to be an arms race for education-related benefits and these million-dollar internships and all this silly stuff that they were arguing. They wanted to get antitrust immunity. And uh, that was pretty clear once they transitioned their appeal into the U.S. Supreme Court. And then what has happened in practice with respect to these education benefits is that very few of the 65 Power 5 schools are all in with these benefits. I think only a third of them have committed to these benefits, and some schools don't offer the, the full amount that they could allow, and there are different criteria and And a couple of conferences have actually turned over those decisions to the member institutions in their conference. And I think that could be a way to mitigate any potential collusion issues among the conferences. So these decisions aren't being made at the conference level, which I think is what Judge Wilkins' order envisioned. And I don't know if there are any issues with sending it down to the institutions. I wouldn't think there would be because the more market participants you have making decisions on these benefits, the farther away you are from any potential anti-competitive collusion. But I want to talk for a couple of minutes here about all the ways that the Power Five conferences have cooperated. And I'm going to use the word cooperation rather than collusion because that's a legal conclusion. And I think it would remain to be seen if these grant of rights provisions were challenged under a uh, non-poaching theory, an antitrust theory, where that line is. Where do you move from permissible cooperation into unlawful anti-competitive collusion? So uh, what I want to do here is do a tour of the ways in which what are now the Power Five have cooperated over the years in the nature of a timeline and an explanation of why each of these milestones is consequential uh, from a potential antitrust standpoint. And then I also want to talk about what happened after Texas and Oklahoma left the Big 12, because a lot of people forget, and this is just a testament to how quickly the news cycles move. But after that happened, you had some really strong reactions. One from Oklahoma State University President Casey Schramm, where she just came out and said this was conspiratorial. And obviously, these conversations have been going on for a long time, and that sort of uh, died down. And then, of course, let's see, I think it was on July 29th. So that decision was announced, I think, on July 21st, maybe. And then on July 29th, uh, we're almost on the one-year anniversary of this. Former Big 12 Conference Commissioner Bob Bowlesby sent a cease and desist letter to ESPN accusing it of conspiring with the SEC that is in bed up to their eyeballs with ESPN and uh, basically was making the argument that the that ESPN had induced the SEC to poach Texas and Oklahoma, or they were in some conspiracy to pull that off, and that ESPN and or the SEC 
wrongfully interfered with the Big 12 conference membership contracts, which I guess would presumably include the grant of rights provision. And he made some very powerful accusations. And I did a couple of episodes on on what happened there. Episode 43 was Bob Bowlesby asleep at the wheel, talking about how this could have happened without Bowlesby's knowledge. And then episode 44 on the integrity of college sports and what this new round of conference realignment was going to look like. And it was just going to be the same kind of backstabbing and mudslinging that we saw in the first round. But I, I talked about Bowlesby's letter, his cease and desist letter to ESPN, and how unusual it was because it was the first time in in my recollection where a market participant in college football conference or an individual school went after its primary corporate broadcast media partner. I mean, that's almost unheard of because these interests are so intimately tied together in the business of big time college sports and turning on your media partner is a big, big deal. And so ESPN came out and of course denied any any conspiracy with the SEC to weaken the Big Twelve. And it just disappeared. We don't hear that anymore. But I think in that response, there could have been a tacit admission that there was an understanding at some level that these conferences weren't going to come after each other and that ESPN wasn't going to be involved in pushing any conference to try to poach members from other conferences. And that, I think, speaks to the possibility of viewing these grant of rights provisions on the backside of realignment as essentially non-poaching agreements. You know, I interpreted Bowlesby's comments and that cease and desist letter and and the tenor of how he communicated those concerns really as a betrayal. It's like you betrayed this understanding that we all had that we weren't going to do this, that everybody had their market share worked out after realignment and after autonomy. And we have been cooperating in so many other areas. And now we get stabbed in the back out of the blue. This is a breach of whatever understanding we had as a group of conferences. That's how I interpreted the Big 12's response and, and Bob Bowlesby's comments. And another important feature of what the Big 12 did after that poach and what Bob Bowlesby said in that cease and desist letter, which obviously was drafted by Big 12 attorneys, is that he really focused on the role of the broadcast media partners. In this case, it's ESPN. And in most cases, it's ESPN. With the Big 10, you've got Fox. But when you look at these grant of rights provisions and the extent to which they are linked to the broadcast media rights and uh, ESPN's rights in those contracts, and of course we have the grant of rights provisions, but we don't have all the contracts that are referenced in that grant of rights provision, so we don't know what those contracts say. We don't know the extent of ESPN's leverage, but it is obviously substantial. And ESPN's the empty chair in a lot of these discussions and a lot of these analyses. And I think that, the, that you know, part of the problem here is that you have such a compliant sports media, even those sports media outlets that aren't tied to the production of the actual product the way that Fox and ESPN are. And I think they're very, really reluctant to, to poke the bear 
with ESPN's dominance in the marketplace and the important role that it plays completely off the radar. And of course, they also have the benefit of, as I have mentioned many times before, of being not just the producer of the sports content, the, the college football content, they are the media that covers it, and it's, they are the primary media that, that covers it. So they have enormous control over the message and how people perceive ESPN's role. And I think that Bowlesby pierced the veil on that a little bit. And I think that the response from the other stakeholders, the other Power Five conferences who were in bed with ESPN, and then ESPN itself, and I think through silence, these other non-producer media outlets, that they didn't want to go there. They didn't want to have that conversation. But if there were a challenge to the the overall business model and this five conference cartel and the role that ESPN plays behind the scenes. If that came up through an antitrust suit, there's no telling what that discovery is going to look like. And it would go to the belly of the inner circle of the decision-making in big-time college sports. And my guess is, if that discovery were fruitful, that it's going to be one ugly-ass show. And I think there would be a lot of people uh, scratching their heads and saying, we had no idea. Of course we don't. Because the way the market is structured, there's virtually no incentive for the prisoners in this five conference cartel model to turn on each other through their media partners because that's the gold. The media partners provide the the crystal meth that these schools are dying to get a next, the next hit of, and that is 24-7 exposure, which leads to uh, power, prestige, superiority, or the perception of all those things, and then money, 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 and more money. It's a, it's a great scam. You have a corporate broadcast media outlet who is... Uh, providing nearly 24-7 advertising for your products, your conference product, your institutional product, your coaching product, your athlete product. I mean, it's a great deal. And who wants to disrupt that? Who wants to challenge that? And that's what Bowlesby was doing. And I just wonder if any of the member institutions are looking at this through the antitrust lens and they're saying, you know what, these grant of rights provisions are, are a problem here. And the other thing that's important to understand is that there's no telling how all of these decisions were made. What was the drafting history of these grant of rights provisions? Who was uh, sitting at the tables? Who was exchanging the drafts? Who was uh, pouring over the language? Was ESPN involved? Were all the conferences working together? Was there at least a tacit understanding that the purpose of these grant of rights provisions, or at least one purpose, would be to prevent non-poaching and that everybody agreed on that and that they coordinated and cooperated to make sure that they all were reading from the same page. And those kinds of agreements, those anti-competitive agreements and market practices are often very subtle, but they, they happen all the time. There was one here locally that I'm familiar with that occurred between two high-profile medical centers that are close together and certain departments in those medical centers agreed not to hire each other's doctors. And a group of physicians sued their institution and the other institution and said, this is non-poaching. You are limiting our economic freedom. You're engaging in anti-competitive behavior because you are preventing us from going out into the market to realize our value out in the market. And the Department of Justice actually intervened in that case 
case because they've been prioritizing these anti-poaching agreements. This was in the employment context, but it could arise in any context where a group of market participants agree not to compete with each other. And it's, that was essentially what this non-poaching agreement was between these two medical institutions. And then there was a, a settlement and they're under DOJ supervision not to engage in that kind of behavior going forward. And I think you may have uh, something very similar to that through these grant of rights provisions that are designed to prevent exactly what happened when the SEC picked off Texas and Oklahoma. And of course, we don't really know what the SEC's situation is. They've been very coy about whether they even have a grant of rights provision. The other four conferences clearly do. We know what three of them look like through Mr. Wilhelm's public records requests. We don't know what the Big Tens looks like. But if you're going to look at this through an anti-competition lens, there could be some really interesting discovery there. And one of the important questions is where does ESPN play into all this? What role have they played? And then the, the the question would be, and I think this was true for the Big 12, do you really turn on your media partner? So if you're one of these schools in one of the, the three kind of uh, lower tier vulnerable conferences right now, what did you know about the, the drafting of these grant of rights provisions? Was your institution fully aware of what was going on there? Did they buy into it? Did you have full disclosure? Or was this done at the conference commissioner level and the broadcast media level and closed door meetings that are dominated by entertainment industry executives. We don't know. But when you look at what happened with UCLA in particular, I'm not so sure this was as much an issue with USC because it's private, but there was a lot of pushback at the state level in California after UCLA chose to leave the Pac-12. And Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, was saying, what, what the hell happened here? And they were asking about the communications with Michael Drake, who's head of the California system. And as an aside, he's the former chair of the NCAA Board of Governors, and he was the face person for its dishonest campaign on name, image, and likeness. But he supposedly had some involvement in this, or at least was aware of it, but said, look, we don't have a role here. And really, the conference doesn't have a role. This is an institutional decision. And UCLA, can do whatever it wants to. But I think there are some open questions about who made this decision, who was involved in the decision-making process, and whether all the stakeholders were given an opportunity to weigh in here. And I think that same possibility exists in any big decision that's made at the structural level in college sports. What do the member institutions really know? What do the individual university presidents really know? What do the Big Ten presidents know when this decision to accept UCLA and USC was kind of sprung on them? So, so if there is the possibility that the member institutions, particularly those who might now want to land in another conference, really weren't fully apprised of what was happening through the first round of conference realignment into the autonomy movement and then into these grant of rights contracts, they may have some incentive to, if they want to get out from under that grant of rights contract to say, wait a minute, this was just anti-competitive collusion. And will they do that? Will they go after the conference? Will they go after each? ESPN, if that's a pathway they have to follow. Who knows? But I think that the anti-competitive features of this overall business model that are chronic and they never go away and they never will go away could express themselves in this next round of conference realignment. I've been saying that a long time. I haven't really viewed it through the lens of this grant of rights as a non-poaching agreement, but you've still got this have-not problem, which is never going to go away. And it's getting more acute now as the haves are getting fewer and stronger and the have-nots are getting more and weaker. 
So I want to just talk about this duality. There's the perception now that the big conferences are competing because they're stealing member institutions from other conferences. But that really is evidence of perhaps a breach of the non-poaching agreements rather than true competition. And I want to talk about all the ways that the Power Five have been cooperating, really focusing on their cooperation most recently and even after what happened last year with Texas and Oklahoma and the extent to which they are reading from the same page on some of the most important issues facing college sports right now and the future of college sports and who is going to be in the decision-making chairs. Again, this comes back in many ways to who gets to decide. And despite all this infighting, these little skirmishes that have gone on among and between the Power Five, they are largely still in a cooperation mode when it comes to having iron-fisted control over the regulatory and financial future of big-time college sports. And that expresses itself through the way they are managing federal litigation and certainly how they're managing their campaign in Congress to get federal protections and immunities that would basically put them on the iron throne of college sports regulation. Okay, so earlier in the episode, I was talking about the antitrust issues that come up again and again and again, starting in the 1950s with the stare-down of Penn and Notre Dame by Walter Byers and the NCAA. I'm going to pick up after conference realignment came to its full fruition and kind of closed out in 2012 on the backside of this first round. And then I want to talk about the autonomy legislation. And I did a number of episodes on this. I actually did a couple of episodes on that year 2014 because it was so important. And I've talked in many other episodes about how the Power Five pitched their interests to the Division I Board of Directors when they were making the case for autonomy. And then in February of this year, I was working on episodes analyzing the consequences of this constitutional makeover and what it really meant. And I did episode 97, I think it was on February 13th, titled The New NCAA Power 5 Autonomy 2.0 and looked at the the similarities. There were eerie similarities between the Power 5's autonomy movement in 2013-2014 and this Constitution Committee Transformation Committee power grab by the Power 5. That's how I saw it and how I analyzed it in uh, 2022. And they are virtually identical. And the one piece of the puzzle that the Power Five did not get in 2014 that they finally got in 2022 was control over infractions and enforcement and the opportunity to have an enforcement and infractions process that was completely outside of the NCAA national office. But this Power Five autonomy movement really was based on cooperation, if not outright collusion. And when you go back to the written case that the Power Five made for the autonomy classification, you see the extent to which they saw their interests as unified, allied, and fundamentally different from the rest of the NCAA. And two university presidents, Harvey Perlman, the former chancellor of the University of Nebraska, who at the time was a new member of the Big Ten. I think they came into the Big Ten in 2011. And then Bernie Matchin, who is the was the president of the University of Florida, authored a memo on behalf of all of the Power Five conferences and member institutions, making the case to the NCAA that they needed special treatment, that their interests were different 
from the rest of the NCAA and that they wanted that reality recognized in the regulatory model through the creation of this autonomy classification, which created an association within an association and a sub-cartel of the NCAA. And they made that uh, point again and again and again. And I go through that 2013 memo in detail in episode 97, and I did it in some pay-for-play pay episodes back when I was talking about that year of 2014, but episode 97 ties what happened in 2013 to what was happening, or what is happening actually right now through this transformation committee, and it all runs through the lens of Power 5 interests and the Power 5's attempts to have iron-fisted control over their destiny, their business model, and the regulation of college sports under the NCAA umbrella. And that document, that memo that was produced in the O'Bannon litigation, and I've talked about it a bit, but I went through it paragraph by paragraph in that episode 97. It is the blueprint for what is happening right now and the interests that are driving the decisions right now. And it is based on Power 5 cooperation or, or collusion, however you want to call it, not on Power 5 competition. And at or about the same time, you had the same thing going on with the formation of the CFP, that would, the CFP LLC. And again, I, I've mentioned this too, but it's important to note that the legal entity that runs the CFP is a limited liability company, not an education nonprofit. It is a business entity, a for-profit business entity formed in 2012. And the first playoff game wasn't until 2015. So you had this cooperation among the Power Five. And uh, I just want to stop right there in our cooperation timeline to point out that all of this cooperation that occurred on the backside of conference realignment and the CFP in 2012, then the autonomy memo in 2013 that laid the case for autonomy legislation, then the autonomy legislation itself in 2014 was all geared towards solidifying the market dominance of these five cartel members that became the business of big-time college sports. And it is at exactly this time that these conferences are executing these grant of rights agreements. So the ACC agreement was was executed in 2013, the same year and about the same time as the Power Five are making their pitch for autonomy legislation to further the market interests, the business interests, the regulatory interests of the Power Five conferences as a group of conferences. What does that mean? It means that the environment that existed in 2013 was one where the Power Five were looking to cement in the cartel's power. And that's, I think, an appropriate way to look at that time frame. And then you are coming into the Austin litigation and on the backside of the O'Bannon litigation. It's so important to understand that in all of these litigation campaigns, the Power Five conferences as a group of conferences have been defendants in those suits along with the NCAA. They have been lockstep with the NCAA in their litigation strategy, and they have been lockstep among and between the Power Five in their litigation strategy. That was true in O'Bannon. It was true in Austin. And now it's true in this House case, this name, image, and likeness case that is pending in California right 
now. So that's cooperation. Uh, you can call it whatever you want to, but you know it's interesting in those lawsuits. And this goes to this uh, kind of tension between the the remedy that Judge Wilkin came up with in Austin and how the athletes and their lawyers viewed the market participants when they filed their complaints, because the complaints named the Power Five and they were deemed as co-conspirators in this antitrust conspiracy with the NCAA to defeat the athletes' interest. Then on the backside of Austin, all of a sudden they become the pathway to a remedy through conference competition. I mean, it's an interesting duality there. And I've talked a bit about that in my analysis of the antitrust cases. And then, of course, in Congress. So when the NCAA began its congressional campaign in 2019 to end the athletes' rights movement through federal protections and immunities under the guise of nil, and those federal protections and immunities would have eliminated federal courts through antitrust immunity. They would have eliminated state legislatures through preemption, and they would have made it impossible under federal or state law for athletes to be deemed employees of the universities. The Power Five were in lockstep with the NCAA, and they let the NCAA take the lead on that. But you have to remember that in those hearings in 2020, Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC was taken to the microphones in the Commerce Committee to talk about the sanctity of the student part of student athlete and these athletes can't be employees. He was right down the talking point list. He was a human talking point for the NCAA Power 5 interest. Bob Bowlesby testified in that very first hearing in February of 2020 as the senior statesman among Power 5 conference commissioners, and he was right down the talking point line as well. So even though those two conferences wound up being at odds with each other the following year, they were in direct cooperation with each other in their campaign in Congress, and they remained allied in their campaign in Congress after the the SEC poached Texas and Oklahoma. They are bound by some very powerful cooperation instincts and incentives. The next thing I want to talk about here is so, so important because it has gotten very little attention. But as the NCAA's campaign in the Senate was playing out, the, the Power Five, I think, got a little anxious because they felt like the NCAA wasn't pressing the gas hard enough. The NCAA was running all of the lobbying campaign at that time. The uh, Brownsteet Hyatt firm was the go-to lobbyist on behalf of both the NCAA and the Power Five. And remember, at or about the time that that first hearing occurred in February of 2020, you had every single Power Five conference hiring their own lobbyists. And what's interesting about that is when you go back and you look at the lobbying disclosure reports, and I just looked at the most recent ones that were filed this month, July of 2022, every single Power Five conference has three lobbying firms working for them. And two of those lobbying firms represent all five conferences. Marshall and Pop and Elmendorf Ryan are on the payroll today as of July 28, 2022 for every single Power Five conference. That is cooperation. Is it collusion? We don't know. But that is evidence that despite all of the infighting and uh, the poaching and the fear about conference realignment and what do these grant of rights documents mean, in the most important 
ways right now in terms of the future of college sports and the regulatory model, these five conferences are still unified because they have the same incentive structure. They want to end the athletes' rights movement. They want absolute control over the marketplace. They've gotten the NCAA out of the way after this constitutional makeover, and now they are running college sports. But in May of 2020, when the, the Power Five were really worried that the NCAA was dallying. And that's, I think that's just in the DNA of the NCAA. They just, they're incapable of a sense of urgency that would, would require them to take bold action, particularly when it comes to protecting the athletes they claim to represent. But on, on May 23rd, the Power Five Conference commissioners sent a joint letter to the leaders in both the House and the Senate. So they sent this letter to Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, and Chuck Schumer. And they say, on behalf of our 65 institutions, we are grateful for your leadership and diligence in the current crisis facing our nation. So, you know, that's an acknowledgement that they're asking for a congressional intervention during one of the most challenging crises in the history of the country. I've, I've talked about that, too. And it's amazing that they even got an audience under these circumstances to ask for the federalization of their compensation limits. But they go on to say, we realize that as the country moves through the peak of the pandemic, Congress will begin to reintegrate other business into its calendar. We would like to offer you our perspective on a timely issue that is appropriately before you and your colleagues, enabling college student athletes to be paid for licensing their name, images, and likenesses. And wow, I mean, the, the arrogance in that opening is just breathtaking. What these five conferences are saying is, stop what you're doing. We're in the middle of one of the biggest public health crises and, and financial crises in the history of the United States of America. But this is important stuff here because uh, we, we need you to drop what you're doing and listen to our concerns because we really want to get these athletes some name, image, and likeness compensation. <laughs> and I've talked all about how that market came into existence and it didn't have a damn thing to do with voluntary regulatory decision-making. It was because the NCAA and the Power Five didn't get what they wanted from Congress to shut this market down. So they go on to say, the members of the Autonomy Five conferences, the Power Five conferences, I'm going to call them the Power Five, the ACC, Big 12, Big 10, Pac-12, and SEC support legislation providing a single national standard for NIL that would protect student athletes, provide economic opportunity, and promote academics. This letter ensures you hear directly from us as any NIL changes will will have the greatest impact on the Power Five conferences and our member institutions. While we agree with the NCAA on some points related to NIL, our impression is that members of Congress are most interested in hearing the views of the universities in their home states as well as those of the conferences to which those institutions belong. The Power Five and our member institutions welcome contact with you and your colleagues to discuss our views on this important topic. So that's the we are special argument. We're so doggone important that you have to listen to our views. You know, don't listen to the NCAA. Yeah, we agree with them, but they're not really representing our interests, and they're certainly not acting quickly enough. And they use the term time is of the essence a couple of times in this letter. They really want to drive home this sense of urgency to get this protective federal legislation in place right now. And they were looking at the midterm elections, and although it looked un 
unlikely at that time in, in the spring and summer of 2020 that the Republicans were going to lose control of the Senate. The Power Five didn't want to take any chances. And then they go on with their Orwellian uh, discussion about what they need from Congress. They need preemption. They need antitrust immunity. They need athletes can't be employees as a precondition to providing any name, image, and likeness benefits. And then they go on to say something here that I think is really the important, most important part here. They say, as the leaders of the Power Five conferences, we believe strongly that Congress should enact the framework for a clear national policy on nil as soon as possible and not wait for the NCAA process to conclude before moving forward with the national legislative plan. We intend to work with the NCAA to help shape those rules, but the congressional process should move forward in the meantime. In the absence of federal nil legislation, we expect most, if not all, states to pass their own disparate nil laws in early 2021 to take effect in the summer of 2021, if not sooner. So time is of the essence. And then they attach to that letter, and there's more stuff there, but I want to stop there. Then they attach to the letter an addendum that is titled Consensus Principles on Nil. And the consensus is among and between the Power Five. These are, it's just a laundry list of everything they want to gain immunity from any liability or responsibility and to limit to the extent possible any name, image, and likeness market. So this is just an open power grab. But the consensus here is among and between the Power Five. And they are saying, look, yeah, we agree with the NCAA, but we need this thing to happen and we need it to happen now. And I guess I just want to make one more point here. They were saying that if they didn't get all of these extraordinary federal protections and immunities immediately, then we would be looking at the end of college sports as we knew them. They talk about the consensus principles, and then they say these principles are ones which Congress alone has the power to provide. This is the federal bailout. And then they say this, without these important principles, the future of college athletics becomes uncertain. That's the sky is falling argument. And the NCAA and Power Five didn't get anything that they were asking from Congress in 2020 and through June of 2021. And guess what? The games go on. The games go on. And Kirby Smart just uh, announced that he got a new contract at, at Georgia that's worth, what, uh, $12 million a year. You had the, the coaching carousel on steroids, and you had all these coaches getting mega contracts, Lincoln Riley and Brian Kelly and all, all these big-time coaches just uh, sticking their face in the trough of the largesse of the big-time college sports marketplace, which not only didn't come to a fatal collapse, but after COVID, it is now back on warp speed. And with this new Big Ten contract with uh, Fox Sports, we could have an unprecedented billion dollar a year conference deal. And then, we, of course, we've got all these sports betting contracts that are waiting in the wings that will likely be worth hundreds of millions of dollars to the Big Ten and the SEC. Yes, indeed, the games go on and the business rocks along. And all of those interests, all those Power Five interests are united now to prevent these athletes from participating in the uh, economic liberties that the other in-system stakeholder beneficiaries freely enjoy in this dysfunctional business model. So in this context of the potential consequences of Power 5 cooperation, that letter says to me they are lockstep. They want the same things in, in protecting themselves from external regulatory threats. And they are special. 
We are a special group of market participants and we deserve special treatment. That's the way they think about the business model. And I also did an episode back during this Constitutional Committee and the the Transformation Committee's takeover of the regulation of college sports on how the Power Five football elite see the world. And I talked about those 1997 hearings. And Jim Delaney, the Big Ten commissioner, testified back then. And when there was talk about a a playoff and and the NCAA trying to impose some kind of FBS playoff on the what are now the Power Five, Delaney just laughed and said, sure, go ahead, put together your play off or your championship and we'll just sit it out and we'll see if there are any Americans who actually want to watch the group of five compete for a national championship under the NCAA banner. And that puts aside the question of whether that could even happen after Board of Regents. But Delaney was just saying, we own this marketplace. And I think he was also saying effectively, we own the NCAA. So you can't tell us what to do. We're going to do whatever the hell we want to do because we are special and we are bigger and stronger and more powerful than you. And now after conference realignment, one point oh, we are working together as a unit to just run roughshod over the interests of any other market participants in the college sports marketplace. That's the way they see the world. And that's precisely what they're doing right now. And I think it's also important to point out that sometimes when we're looking at these kinds of issues, we just breeze through the most obvious red flags. And the most obvious red flag with respect to Power 5 anti-competitive behavior is that they have been actively seeking antitrust immunity, not just through their lobbying campaign, but through that uh, letter. They explicitly outlined what they wanted from Congress, and federal antitrust immunity was one of the three key components. And then you also had them asking for antitrust immunity in the Austin suit, and the Power Five uh, conferences were defendants in that suit. So what they're saying is that, yes, we are engaging in conduct, which is anti-competitive. And instead of changing their conduct, they want a federal court or the United States Congress to immunize them from any anti-competitive market behavior. And there is zero evidence right now at the end of July in 2022 that these Power Five market participants, particularly the Big Ten and the SEC, have any intention of altering their quest to be placed above the law. And their lobbying disclosure reports are perfect proof of that. And I want to close this out really emphasizing what Bowlesby had to say a year ago, nearly a year ago today, after the Big 12 lost Texas and Oklahoma. I'm using an article from The Athletic, and it's titled Big 12 Commission. Bob Bowlesby alleges tampering by ESPN in cease and desist. And the, the reason that I'm using an article from The Athletic is that when you consume quote unquote news from ESPN, particularly when it relates to issues going to the structure of uh, big-time college sports, the financial structure of big-time college sports, and more particularly big-time college football, you consume that news at your own risk because it is tainted with profound conflicts of interest. And that's going to be a a separate series of episodes where I'm going to look at some of the articles that have been published in ESPN throughout some of these important milestones over the last couple of years. 
and how cleverly they suggest the way that you should be thinking about this. And it just happens to be the way that ESPN may be seeing their interests, their financial interests, their market interests, their market participation behind the scenes. And I would love to know what the editorial process looks like at ESPN now, particularly after the Big 12 and Bob Bowlesby were accusing them of uh, interfering with the Big 12 contracts. And they were making a claim for what's called tortious interference with contract. It's not a breach of contract case, but it's somebody taking an action that induces parties to a contract to breach the contract. And because it is what's called a tort, it's, it's a wrong other than a breach of contract and it's an intentional tort, there could be potential damages there that go beyond any breach of the Big 12 conference contract among the members that are actually parties to that contract. So it's a a kind of a powerful cause of action there. It's It's an aggressive one. Because it's saying, you've done some bad, bad stuff here, ESPN. But when you read the ESPN coverage of that issue, or non-coverage, sometimes, I've made this point too, sometimes some of the most powerful persuasion in public opinion is what powerful media outlets just refuse to cover. And if it's not covered by ESPN, then it doesn't exist. So ESPN issued their denial and their, you know, up yours to to Bob Bowlesby. And then it just disappeared in part because ESPN stopped covering it. No other news outlet stayed with the story, I think, in part because there's this understanding, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, among all these uh, sports media outlets that they're in the same marketplace and they don't really want to be turning on each other. So it's a fascinating dynamic. And I think that exists in so many aspects of, uh, of big media here and what the consolidation of big media into these mega conglomerates. And it's a real problem at a much broader level than college sports. It it goes to the heart of our freedoms and and the First Amendment. There's a reason that was the First Amendment, and it's under assault right now through all of this cooperation in uh, in the media that exists today. But So I, I want to just talk about how this article portrays Bowlesby's comments and some of the actual comments that he made, because they talked to him in addition to getting a copy of the cease and desist letter that the Big 12 sent to ESPN. And uh, let's see, in the two-page email obtained by The Athletic on Wednesday, Bowlesby alleges that ESPN, quote, has taken certain actions that are intended to not only harm the Big 12 conference, but also result in financial benefits for ESPN. Perish the thought that ESPN would be engaged in such skullduggery. And then they go on. Bowlesby said he is aware of ESPN's active engagement in discussions with at least one other conference regarding that conference inducing members of the Big 12 to leave. Bowlesby told The Athletic on Wednesday he wasn't prepared to share evidence of ESPN's alleged actions, but described it as, quote, irrefutable. In a statement on Wednesday, ESPN said the claims in the letter have no merit. And then they get another quote from Bowlesby. The actions noted above are an apparent attempt to interfere with and induce our members to breach these contractual obligations to the conference and to further encourage conference realignment for the financial benefit of ESPN, Bowlesby said in an email. He goes on, the Big 12 conference demands that ESPN immediately cease and desist all actions that may harm the conference and its members and that it not communicate with the Big 12 conference's existing members or any other NCAA conference 
conference regarding the Big 12 conference's members, possible conference realignment, or potential financial incentives or outcomes related to possible conference realignment. And then ESPN responded on Thursday by sending a letter to Bowlesby saying the allegations are without merit. And they talk about how vague these allegations are. And they say, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? And who knows where the evidence is? And, and the only way we're going to get that evidence, quite frankly, with this kind of market tomfoolery, and I'm putting it in uh, charitable terms, but these people aren't going to make a public announcement that they want the SEC as strong as it can possibly be. And they don't really give a damn about the Big 12. I mean, I, I, my guess is that's probably how a lot of the these entertainment executives see it. I mean, and, and their goal isn't to worry about the integrity of these conferences. Their goal is to get the most valuable commercial product they can into the marketplace so they can make more money. That's what they do. That's their business. Okay. <laughs> and the fact though, and I mentioned this in my episode 44 on the integrity of college sports and Bowlesby's response. And I was talking to my wife back then about it and she was suffering my conversations and I'm just giving her the highlights and what Bowlesby's concerns were. And she said, well, wait a minute, doesn't the Big 12 do business with ESPN? Aren't they benefiting from ESPN's contracts? Aren't they on ESPN? I said, yes, they are. She said, well, why is he complaining? <laughs> you know, that's an, a good question, right? So you have all these people that are in this cooperation mode to try to control the, the market of big-time college football. And that's precisely what the Power Five has done after the first round of conference realignment. And then when the cartel turns on each other, all of a sudden the Big 12 is pointing the fingers at the company that has been putting money in their pocket for years and years and years. And it just speaks to the lack of integrity in college sports. And that's why I, I, I titled that episode 44, The Integrity of College Sports. And I played some clips. You might want to listen to it. I got some clips from uh, congressional testimony about the integrity of college sports at Lindsey Graham, integrity of college sports. And it comes up again and again and again. I have Mark Emmert. I have Bob Bowlesby. I have Lindsey Graham. And what happens when the prisoners turn on each other is the opposite of integrity. Pick your antonym, you know, and that's happening right now. But it doesn't change the fact that we don't really don't know what the role of ESPN or, or with the Big Ten Fox really has in this marketplace. And we, we will never know unless there is someone willing to file that lawsuit and then just dive straight into the mosh pit and get muddied in aggressive litigation to peek into the cave of these powerful decision makers behind the scenes and then the smoke-filled rooms and the smoke-filled Zoom meetings. <laughs> Who are these people? Who's participating in those meetings? Who has a seat at the table? What are they talking about? And as was the case in this non-poaching agreement that existed here in, in these two medical centers locally here in North Carolina, you're not going to have a neon sign saying, we're not going to hire doctors away from the other institution. These are understandings that are very subtle, and these are smart people. They understand the potential anti-competitive effects of what they're doing. You think, maybe they didn't, maybe it was just ignorance, but I think they, they had to have some understanding that this wasn't a, a cool thing to be doing. So these decisions are made, and these agreements exist through a very subtle communication and winks and nods and handshakes, not through a bold letter, full cap emails and, and memos. 
that are distributed widely. These are behind the scenes deals that happen all the time, which is why we have the Sherman Antitrust Act and the Clayton Act. Because people out in the market, they are looking for ways to cut corners. They're looking for ways to try to get a competitive advantage. And that line between gaining a competitive advantage and engaging in anti-competitive behavior is a fine line. And it's those are complicated analyses and they're very fact-intensive analyses. But those issues are there. They've always been there with college football. So to to try to suggest that that can't be an issue now is, is silly and it ignores the history of big time college football. And it's one of the reasons that I've spent so much time talking about the history and the patterns. And I talked about Ronald Smith's 2001 book, Play by Play, when he talked about the history of radio and television and college sports. And in his timeline in the back, it's a very detailed timeline and it tells a story. And one of the, the prominent themes in that story is that the antitrust issues are always there. They are always percolating just beneath the surface, even when there doesn't appear on its face to be a clear-cut antitrust issue because of the nature of the market and the history of these market participants and how they've interacted with each other. So I, I think you could make a case or at least make a good faith inquiry into the existence, the purpose, the history of these grant of rights provisions and whether they amount to nothing more than non poaching contracts which may be anti-competitive all right so with that i'm just going to close this out i want to thank you so much for joining it's always an honor and a privilege to have you and i hope to have you back for the next episode of the big amateurism monologues take care